The James Webb Space Telescope is ready for launch and the universe. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. After 20 years of development, the JWST is days away from the beginning of what scientists around the world hope will be a mission of discovery that rivals or surpasses the Hubble Space Telescope. Three key members of the telescope team will take us through what it may reveal. René Doyon, Heidi Hamill, and Michael McElwain will also explain why major advances in science can require major investments. Bruce Betts asked you what mythical creature he is. We'll go beyond the man and the myth when we answer his question during What's Up. Bruce will also tell you where to find Comet Leonard if you hurry and you're lucky. There's a beautiful image of the recently discovered visitor from the Oort cloud at the top of the December 10 edition of The Down Lake. You can also read about the total solar eclipse on December 4th that was mostly visible only from Antarctica. It shows up as a dark spot over the South Pole in a satellite image at planetary.org slash downlake. Heard about the moon hut? China's U-22 rover spotted it on the far side. We're hoping for a less fuzzy view of what's probably just a boulder. Remember, extraordinary claims, extraordinary evidence. I have a couple of other suggestions for you. First, there's our terrific new video about night sky photography. This lazy amateur astronomer enjoyed it immensely, and I learned a lot. It features Planetary Society member Ossie James. The video and accompanying article can be found at planetary.org, which is where you can also read an interview with the woman who hired me at the Society more than 20 years ago. Charlene Anderson was the first person brought in by our founders in 1980, the first editor of our magazine, The Planetary Report, and our associate director. It's wonderful to hear from her again. The history of what would become the James Webb Space Telescope goes back to at least 1989. Now, nearly 23 years later, the giant infrared eye is about to begin its work. As we publish this week's plan rad, the telescope is on top of the European Space Agency's Ariane 5 rocket that will send it to L2, a so-called Lagrange point, at which the gravity of the Sun, the Earth, and the Moon are almost perfectly balanced. L2 is nearly four times as distant from Earth as the Moon is, making it essentially unreachable should anything go wrong. And there is plenty that could go wrong. But our guests are among those who are confident it will unfold like a beautiful origami flower, revealing its six-and-a-half-meter segmented mirror made of gold-plated beryllium and the massive five-layer sunshield that will keep the telescope cool enough to detect the most distant objects in the universe. Four intricate and powerful instruments will stare at the light collected by the mirror. The principal investigator for one of these is René Doyon, director of the Mont-Mégantique Observatory and the Institute for Research on Exoplanets at the University of Montreal, where he is a professor of physics. Joining René and me a few days ago was Heidi Hamill, Vice President for Science at Aura, the Association of Universities for Research in Astronomy. 
Aura is the nonprofit consortium that manages and operates astronomical facilities, including the Hubble Space Telescope and the JWST, through its Space Telescope Science Institute. Heidi is also vice president of the Planetary Society Board of Directors. Michael McElwain of NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center completes our trio. Mike is the JWST Observatory Project Scientist. Heidi, Renee, Mike, welcome to Planetary Radio on this auspicious day. Well, it's not happening today, but we are within days of this absolutely marvelous event that is going to take place, something that I know you and a lot of us out here have been waiting for for many years, the launch of the JWST. Thank you for joining us. I'm excited. I wonder about you folks. Excited, apprehensive, hopeful, confident. How does this feel, Heidi? All the feels, Matt. Uh, <laughs> with every emotion all wrapped up into one uh, swirl. Uh, anticipation. You know, we've been working on this project for decades, <laughs> some of us literally decades. And uh, we are just so excited, but nervous. It's a, putting our precious telescope on a big rocket and sending it into space. You know, rocket science is hard. I, I think mostly just a state of, of anticipation. We are just waiting now, waiting for all the last steps to occur. Renee, we're going to talk about your very important role in this mission, in this telescope. But I, I ask you the same question, knowing that your instrument is about to reach into space as part of this telescope. How do you feel? Yeah, it's just like, like Heidi, I'm just absolutely thrilled. And I'm really pinching myself because I've been on this project for 20 years. You know, you sort of get used to the, this thing, you know, taking some time. But now this is it. We are days away from launch. I'm just absolutely excited. And Mike, are you going to be at the launch site in French Guiana? Actually, I will be at the Mission Operations Center shortly after launch. We get control of the observatory in space at the Mission Operations Center. So that's when we'll, we'll actually start doing the commanding. Uh, we'll start the commissioning process. And the first 12 and a half hours are, are very intense. We get communications with the telescope. We're tracking its orbit, how it released from the Ariane 5. And we actually have to carry out a mid-course correction. That is an initial burn that puts us out at our orbit in L2. The timing of that burn is actually very important because it's costly in terms of propellant if we make a late burn. And so everyone will be working uh, very hard at the first 12 and a half hours. Then we can relax a little bit. We have an additional burn to make, and then we'll start our deployment sequence. Mike, how long are we going to have to wait until this instrument sees first light and it begins to do the science that we're all looking forward to? Yeah, so it takes about 30 days in order to do all the deployments. Um, that actually happens more quickly. That, that's in about the first 14 days, we do 50 major deployments. And then we start cooling down. And so we actually need to wait for the science instruments to reach their operational telescopes because we use them in order to do the alignment of the telescope. And so those instruments uh, will be cool enough to start observations around 30 days into the mission. Amazing. As cold as space will be, that the requirement of doing, you know, the science that is going to be required of this infrared telescope, it's still going to take 30 days uh, for you to reach that point. Heidi, I'll start with you for this one. Does this telescope have the potential to, to shock and amaze us the way the Hubble Space Telescope has for so many years? There's no doubt that 
the data we're going to get from James Webb Space Telescope will indeed amaze us. I'm not sure about the word shock. That's a that's a not, perhaps not a word I would use. But the capabilities uh, that we have designed for this telescope are revolutionary. The sensitivity that we will have, the spatial resolution at the mid-infrared wavelengths, all of these have been designed to push us into new frontiers of astrophysics that have simply not been available to the telescopes that we currently have on the ground and in space. And for the listeners who mostly like the beautiful pictures of Hubble, we will have equally beautiful pictures coming from the James Webb Space Telescope as well, in addition to all the amazing science that's going to happen. Here's a question that I'm sure all of you have heard time and time again. Are there ways to compare the Hubble and this new space telescope, just in terms of, of making it clear how much more powerful this instrument is, at least at what it's designed to do? Well, I can jump in on this. I mean, we're talking about two orders of magnitudes in terms of sensitive improvement uh, compared to Hubble. And basically because uh, Webb is much bigger, of course, it's just 6.5 meter in diameter compared to 2.4 meter. And the other thing, too, is that, uh, you know, even though Hubble was with time a great instrument to do a little bit of infrared, it was not it's not really optimized. You know, uh, Hubble is going around the Earth every 90 minutes and it's not in a very stable environment. Because Webb is going to be sent 1.5 million kilometers away and always in the shadow, a very cold environment. And that's what we want to do very sensitive and precise infrared astronomy. So that's the main difference. And if we talk about uh, and sensitivity improvement at the mid infrared, you know, long order 5 to 28 microns, the only thing we could compare with was uh, Spitzer, an 85 centimeter. Now you're talking about a sensitivity improvement of, you know, a million. That's a huge improvement. Things that was very faint star for Spitzer are saturating our detector with uh, with uh, James Webb. So it's incredible improvement. I know that you've all also been involved, are involved with ground-based astronomy. What will JWST do that can't be done as well by ground-based telescopes? And I include in this, of course, the new class of gigantic uh, instruments that are going to be seen first light in, in the next few years. The challenge with ground-based telescopes is that they are on the ground. Between them and outer space is Earth's atmosphere. Earth's atmosphere absorbs certain wavelengths of light. The molecules in our atmosphere, the water molecules, carbon dioxide molecules, etc., they absorb light and that light can never reach our ground-based telescopes. For example, to observe in these mid-infrared wavelengths that we are so interested in with James Webb Space Telescope, we have to go to space <laughs> to observe them. There are a few windows, we call them windows, where some of this mid-infrared light can make it to the surface. But also, mid-infrared light is heat. It, it's warmth. And our Earth and our telescopes on Earth are warm. And so the warmth of our telescopes overwhelms the warmth from these distant galaxies and stars. And so the only way to make these observations is to put our telescope not only up in space above the Earth's atmosphere, but very far from the Earth with a big sun shield that's shading the telescope from Earth and the moon and the sun. 
by shading our telescope, we can keep it super cold and detect this light from the distant universe. So I don't care how big your ground-based telescope is. Give me a 30-meter telescope. I'd love that. But it can't do the science that Webb is being designed to do. I want to hear from each of you what you hope the JWST may reveal to us about the cosmos. I mean, ranging from worlds that are relatively nearby to galaxies that stretch back to the beginning of the universe. I was trained as an exogratic astronomer. My PhD was in, in, in spectroscopy of interacting in colliding galaxies. So that's one thing that's very close to my heart in finding the very first galaxies that lit up, you know, we think a few hundred million years after the, the Big Bang, that would be a fantastic discovery. And all four science instruments on board were designed to do just that. But in 1995, my life changed. That was the very first discovery of an exoplanet. And at that time, we started to dream of actually taking pictures of them. And we managed to do that 10 years later. And in fact, one of my uh, quests is to basically detect an atmosphere of an exoplanet that has water on it. That's the, the big step. You know, we have more than 4,000 exoplanets discovered so far, a handful of them in the so-called habitable zone. You know, this region's not too close, not too far from the star where we can hope to detect liquid water on a surface. And we have the targets. And those were discovered only a few years ago. And the web instruments will be capable of detecting the atmospheres. That's a key, a key uh, stepping stone towards detecting biosignatures, molecular hydrogens. I don't want to say that Web will do this. That's you know, nature would have to be very generous for to do that with Web. But uh, it's it's clear that Web will 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 make us giant step in in that direction. So that's that's the two things I'd like to see: first light and uh, water in a temperate planet. Mike. Yeah, I'd like to echo what Renee was saying. I'd also like to, to add for the listeners that Renee was also the first person to directly detect an exoplanet. He did that with a ground-based telescope, and it was a huge discovery for which he's uh, received multiple awards. Like Renee, I think the, the early universe observations, we've never been able to see there before. Uh, that was the primary motivation for building Webb initially to go beyond the Hubble Space Telescope. Astronomers, even in the mid-1990s, knew that we needed a large infrared space telescope to observe the early universe because of the cosmological redshift. We will be able to do that, and that's one of the first sets of observations that will be carried out in our Cycle 1 science program. We will look and see what the first luminous objects are and what they look like and and how those objects then evolved into the current universe um, that we have today. So that's super exciting. I'm also very excited about exoplanets. I study exoplanets myself. There's so much discovery. Um, As Renee was saying, back in 1995, the first exoplanet was discovered orbiting a sun-like star. We now know of over 4,000 exoplanets orbiting other stars. Those are, are outside our solar system. Webb will really be in a position to characterize these exoplanets in a way that we've never had before with these infrared capabilities um, oftentimes, while there are many key molecules and, and elements in the atmospheres um, in the infrared, so we can study their compositions and get insight into their formation mechanisms. And it's just going to be a transformative new capability for exoplanets. Heidi, I want to hear from you too, but I got to boast for a moment. One of the highlights in my career here doing planetary radio was the conversation I had with Michelle Mayor. Uh, the uh, gentleman who was part of that uh, that discovery uh, of the first exoplanet circling, well, a regular star, not a pulsar in that case. Uh, Heidi, what are you looking forward to? 
Well, you know, everything that Renee and Mike have said already, first light, <laughs> the universe, first galaxies, maybe the first stars, exoplanet characterization, the evolution of galaxies over cosmic time, that's all really exciting. I'm a planetary astronomer, and one of the things that's amazing about great observatories with like capital G, capital O great observatories like Hubble and Webb is that they don't just do one thing. So in addition to the the great science that you just heard Renee and Mike talk about, Webb will also be able to study objects within our own solar system. Uh, that's why I signed on to this telescope two decades ago. There was some science I really wanted to do, and I needed this telescope. So characterizing the surfaces of Kuiper Belt objects, not only Pluto, but even smaller ones. Uh, many dozens of Kuiper Belt objects will be characterized with Webb. I'm interested in the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. They have fabulous molecular signatures in the mid-infrared that Webb will be exquisitely sensitive to. So we will learn about the dynamics in the upper atmospheres. We will be studying Jupiter, even though it's really bright. Uh, it's going to be a challenge to observe bright objects like Jupiter and Saturn with a telescope that's designed to observe the faintest galaxies in the universe. Um, but we have our ways, <laughs> tricks and uh, ways of doing that. Um, maybe we'll figure out finally what the chromophores are on Jupiter, making the redness of the great red spot. I could go on. There is just such a wealth of wonderful science that will be coming from James Webb Space Telescope. It's truly gonna be rewriting the textbooks in many, many different fields of astronomy and astrophysics. Renee, I, I wanna ask you about uh, your baby, uh, the Near Infrared Imager and Slitless Spectrograph, N-I-R-I-S-S. -S. How do you pronounce that? We, we'll call it Nereus. Nereus, okay. It sounds like a remarkably powerful and, and versatile instrument. Yeah, so it's uh, Nereus is a, a, an instrument that, well, uh, let me give you a brief overview of the, the instruments on, on board where we have NearCam, the, the machine that will take images, and also that's the machine that will align the telescope. That's a workhorse capability. We have the uh, NearSpec, the uh, European base and US uh, built a multi object spectrograph. So that's the machine to the spectroscopy. You know, astronomers like images, but we need also spectra. So we need to be able to disperse, disperse light, and that information gives us key information about the chemical composition of the objects and also their, 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 their speed, distance. And in the wavelength range, we have MIRI that will do both imaging and spectroscopy at longer wavelength. Now, NERIS is an instrument very similar to NearCam, uh, but simpler, that will be used mostly for spectroscopy capability. And in fact, that's an instrument that came, that came a bit late in the game. It was not planned from the get-go, and uh, it was formally accepted in 2011. We designed NERIS to do uh, one thing. Well, I talked about exoplanet atmospheres. We have a, an observing mode inside NERIS that is specifically designed to look at uh, exoplanet atmospheres on, on bright stars. And in fact, we will devote almost half of our guaranteed time observations to look at a wide range of exoplanet atmosphere. That's one thing. The other aspect of NERIS is that we have a mode that can do slitless spectroscopy, which is unlike NearSpec that takes a little slit, you know, to isol isolate the object that you want. And that's the most accurate way of doing it. But uh, NearSpec can observe more than maybe 200 objects at, at the same times. 
Whereas for some objects like galaxy clusters that we'll look at, we can take thousands of objects in one shot. So it's very complementary. So we, we hope that NEARS will be able to find uh, high, high reach of galaxies, very distant galaxies, and then tell near spec, look, point your slit here. That's a, a very high, a, a high reach of candidate. Heidi, is a project like this evidence that a society is a great society? I'm going to paraphrase Senator Barbara Mikulski. <laughs> she talks about this very topic. And what she said about Hubble is that a good society can build something like the Hubble Space Telescope. But a great society takes that data from Hubble and makes it available to the entire world. To me, that philosophy holds for James Webb Space Telescope. I think that there are probably other societies that can build amazing things. To do that, to build amazing things and have it completely open and free to all, anyone can apply to use the James Webb Space Telescope. If their science is robust, the observations will be taken, that data will be in an archive available to all. I think it is a sign of a great society that we do this kind of science and share it with all of humanity. That is how we as a species progress and grow. And so I think there is value in doing great projects, mega projects, particularly if you share that knowledge with all of humanity. And I think that's a fine place for us to wrap up this conversation. I, th I also hope that you both know, and Renee knows, and everyone on the team, uh, how all of us at the Planetary Society, all of our members feel, and I suspect everybody listening to this show right now, we cannot wait for that first light from this instrument that may just show us also the first light ever in our universe. Thank you both very much for being part of this, and uh, clear skies. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you very much. Rene Doyon, Heidi Hamill, and Michael McElwain. By the way, as we finish this week's show, we learned that the James Webb Space Telescope launch will be delayed at least two more days to January 24th. Planetary Radio continues with What's Up in a Minute. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. It is time for a holiday edition of What's Up with uh, Bruce Betts. He is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. And uh, he's back to tell us about the night sky, which uh, you can't see right now. Well, it's daytime, but also because we're having a big rainstorm in Southern California. Nevertheless, happy holidays. Happy holidays. <laughs> happy happy holidays. holidays. 
May the spacecraft keep flying. Happy holidays to to you. <laughs> All right, enough of it. that. Let's go on to the night sky. <laughs> Matt, still super cool planets over there in the west, but get them soon, get them fast. They're going away in the next very few weeks. Low in the west, you can still check out super bright Venus to its upper left, yellowish Saturn to its upper left, bright Jupiter. And we've got not nearly as bright Comet Leonard. Comet Leonard is in the evening sky, but really low below Venus. You're in better shape if you're Southern Hemisphere. It'll be higher up, but it's I, theoretically you can see it from a dark site with just your eyes, but uh, I would suggest binoculars and, uh, and a dark site. Get a finder chart online. I heard it was kind of a bust. I mean, that it may actually be busting up, uh, that it, it, it let people down. Yeah, that's the thing about comets. Can't predict their behavior very well. There's a joke in there somewhere, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> All right, moving on. On to this week in space history. It was this week that Apollo 8 launched to head off to the moon with humans to go around the moon for the first time. Heck of a mission. We move on to randoms. No. We move on to random space fact, random space, <laughs> space fact. fact. No, there's more, isn't there? May the facts keep on coming and the randomness feel new. Oh, that's wonderful. Happy holidays to you. To you. Hey. That's, that's terrific. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I'm here twice <laughs> on Sundays. Try the steak. Cleaning up our act and taking it on the road, everybody. Anyway, Uranus's moon Miranda, weird looking place, has claimed to the highest cliff in the solar system thought to be possibly as high as 20 kilometers, or about 66,000 feet, Verona Rupes. And by the way, I'm sure you're asking, what's Earth's biggest cliff? I am. Well, it's a lot less than that. Mount <laughs> Thor on Canada's, Canada's, Canada's Baffin Island at uh, 1.25 kilometers, or 4,100 feet. Man. On from the cliffs and on to the mythical creatures. In our trivia contest, I said, I am a mythical creature. What am I? I'll give you a hint. I'm also a category of small body objects that orbit between Jupiter and Neptune. What am I? Boy, did people love responding to this and the fact that you said, what am I? As you will hear <laughs> in moments. Let me tell you who I believe is the winner first. In fact, I'm sure it's the winner. And what's interesting about this is that he did win once before, but it has been over five and a half years, and he regularly enters the contest. So congratulations, Marcel Jan Kriegsman. I hope I'm saying that correctly, in the Netherlands. Uh, Marcel wow, Jan. he earned it. Congratulations. Uh, he said, you're a centaur, Bruce. I am indeed a centaur, and I don't know why I talk like this. <laughs> really? <laughs> I would think centaurs would have deep voices like this. Well, that's the horse end. My horse end has a very deep voice. <laughs> okay. Well, Marcel, you are going to receive a Planetary Society kick asteroid rubber asteroid for your trouble. Thank you so much for uh, being a part of this and uh, for hanging in there with us. What do you got? Who do we have to thank for suggesting the planet name 
Uranus. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until the 22nd. That's Wednesday, December 22nd at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And here's something new for you. We got at headquarters, apparently, a whole pile of uh, International Space Station 2022 calendars. So uh, we will send the winner of this contest one of those. Good luck to all of you. Although only one of you is going to win. So sorry about that. I think we're done. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what your personal barcode would look like. Thank you, and good night. (laughs) Well, that's a horse of a different color, Uh, and that's a different movie, too. That's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its farsighted members. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. At Astra. Astra.